You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. I love the music. Is that your intro? <laughs> that's yeah. That's the smooth nightclub intro. I'm impressed. Going, Suzanne. <laughs> I'm really, really well, thanks, Tim. It's terrific to have you here. We're skyping at the moment, and uh, oh, I can see you. That's fantastic. Yep, yeah, yeah. So I'm um, just having breakfast. That's all right. <laughs> you have to eat. I hadn't eaten. I wondered why am I so hungry? Then I realised. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very good. Basically, I'm really interested in Tim Ferguson, the writer. You have a, a, an amazing um, journey, <laughs> from what I can tell, with your comedy career. And um, I've watched a lot of the um, footage and, um, you know, some of your tours in, in Europe. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff, your overseas tours. And the comedy, the comedy that is a science <laughs> according to your book. Um, I think that I'd like to start the interview with uh, asking you whether you were a larrikin at school. I went to a lot of schools. I went to nine schools by the time I was finished. Right. And uh, I wasn't really much of a larrikin. I, I had to be funny with other students just so they didn't bash me. Right. Um, <laughs> And my chances of getting a girlfriend were very slim because I had absolutely no status. I was always the new kid, and the new kid goes last. Ah. Lousy at sport. So with friends, I was, you know, I was usually a bit of a larrikin, but most of the time I was really quite well behaved, shockingly so. Right. And uh, do you have children of your own today? Oh, yes, but I never talk about them. Oh, right. No, I just wondered whether they, uh, any of them will follow in your footsteps, that's all. I dare. Tim, you've written a couple of books, actually, um, so I, I'm particularly interested in this last one. But tell us about your writing career and when it started. Well, in, uh, in school, I remember in primary school, the first time a teacher said, you know, go off and I want you all to write a story. And it was, I think it was my weekend. Right. Which, you know, pretty, you know, it's a good way to sort the wheat from the chaff, I'd imagine. Right. Some people, you know, friends of mine wrote, my weekend was good. <laughs> After that, they sort of ran out of ideas. <laughs> and my weekend had been good, but not much had happened. So I remember I threw in a dragon and a gunfight and <laughs> uh, just turned it into, you know, a fiction. Yeah which went on and on and, you know, we all had to go home and bring it in on uh, on the Monday and I brought in this epic and uh, I had such a great time writing it. I was inordinately disappointed when the teacher gave me two ticks oh. and only gave one note, which was, please be neat and tidy. Oh, that's outrageous. <laughs> well, neatness and tidiness was never my strong point and uh, so, but I was outraged that he hadn't written his own epic. 
Right. Practical of my work, but that's what happens. You know, you're you're seven years old and you learn how the world works, which is that adults can be just as lazy as students. Yes, <laughs> this is very true. And so, um, your comedy career did that. I mean, that's your early writing. Obviously, you already had a sense of humour. Um, and you use that, as you said, to protect yourself. Um, how did you fall into the world of comedy after school? I met a guy called Richard Feidler, who was uh, a guitarist, and we fell into busking, or mainly because um, it was uh, a good way to meet girls and get cash. Right. <laughs> So we just started singing songs on the street and, uh, you know, they were marginally interesting. <laughs> but uh, they were kind of, you know, things like Wild Thing. Yeah, yeah. Putting on the Ritz where we'd act like idiots. Yeah. And crowd would stop and uh, we realised very quickly that the more people you could stop, the more money would end up the guitar case and so mm. it became sillier and sillier and uh, joined up with another buddy Robert who then had to go to Paris to go to mime school it all worked out well for him he ended up working with Bill Clinton at the UN and he was replaced <laughs> by a young woman called Paul McDermott and <laughs> busking became a uh, yeah much a career and we continued to busk throughout the original life of the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Oh, and and that was in Canberra, wasn't it? That's where yeah, you started? Yeah. go in today to rehearse. It's just a very mm. effective way of seeing what works mm. in front of people without any pressure because no one's paid any money. Yeah, yeah. So it started there and uh, because people can leave at any second, mm infected the Doug Anthony All-Stars with a method which was based on high energy and uh, attack. Right. Just stop people in their tracks and that became more and more exaggerated to the point that now when we walk on stage, the current show is one of the most psychologically violent uh, shows anyone's ever performed in the name of comedy. Really? Oh, it's... It's terrible. It's the worst possible behaviour. <laughs> because, you know, we're all in our early 70s now and so <laughs> we, we're talking about death, we're talking about uh, dementia, we're talking about the loss of one's faculties. Um, <laughs> uh, one's perspective does change. Is, nobody else is doing it. <laughs> yeah. No one else has the brains or the guts to start talking about getting old. Yeah. Yeah, but it's important. There's so many of us in that boat. <laughs> well, yeah, we figure uh, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, if, uh, if we're the first in when it comes to be talking about this stuff, and we plan to be together until one of us dies or gets killed by the others, then <laughs> uh, it would be like Maggie Smith, who started playing grandmother characters at the age of 50. Right. Where she played uh, Peter Pan's grandmother in uh, the film Hook. Yeah. And ever since then, for 40 years now, she's been playing little old ladies. And so <laughs> we plan to play 
grumpy old men <laughs> for the rest of our lives. Well, I think we deserve that, don't you think? When you get to a certain age, you can become a grumpy old man or a grumpy old well, woman. People have, told. people have to be informed as to uh, their own inefficiencies, their own inadequacies. <laughs> this stuff has to be pointed out. And, of course, fears have to be faced. And the best way to do that is through uh, comic fury. I love this comic fury. I saw an example of it with Paul McDermott when he said that you were just a charlatan when you brought out this book on comedy. I oh, loved yeah. it. He, he totally, totally insulted you. I'm a comedian. We're all charlatans. Yes. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he prays. Though I, I praise him more than he deserves. But <laughs> when he says, when he calls me a charlatan, I know he's... He's trying to send a message. It's a bit like when a boy punches a girl at school. It's because he likes her. <laughs> right. <laughs> Communication in a different form. Yeah. So, uh, so where did your um, first book come um, into being? I mean, you wrote that wonderful piece for primary school. I will acknowledge that. <laughs> and then what happened when you actually published a book? How did that happen? The All Stars put together a book book, which was uh, <laughs> very much a, a tormented uh, collection of tales that were woven into a very um, a very loose uh, overall narrative arc of uh, a young man with no arms, no legs, and no tongue. Right. Um, called Stephen J. Kehis. And he... Uh, he, you know, undergoes all sorts of horrors and torments, um, some of which are conveniently interspersed with uh, uh, visions of, you know, other stuff, which is how we got the other stuff into it. Right. Um, and the book did very well, and it's still, you know, it's still, um, people inform me, a, a difficult read. Right. <laughs> and it's... Uh, it's a it's a fairly uncompromising story, um, with the, you know there are no jokes there are comics, but uh, none of them are funny. Right. So, Interesting. We, well, we kind of did it because one thing that always obsessed all three of us was to do what other comedians just don't do. Right. Uh, to create artworks, to create comics and, and uh, different fashions and caps and all sorts of merchandise. And the book was part of that. So it wasn't what anybody expected from three, you know, yahoos who sing songs. Yes. And, uh, so you do, enjoy, came... you do enjoy shocking, don't you? I mean, that's one of your fortes is that you like to shock audiences, don't you? And that's usually just to get their attention. Right. Um, to uh, start them thinking. Comedy is the fastest, most effective way to get people thinking because if people are laughing at what you're saying, mm. they're agreeing with you. Even if it's despite everything in their being, it's a sign that their, uh, their physiology actually agrees with what it's hearing. Mm. Only truth works in comedy. People have to recognise a truth. Otherwise, 
you know, how are they going to have a spontaneous involuntary uh, physical reaction like laughter? Right. It has to seem like a genuine uh, threat or a, uh, uh, a genuine revelation. Yeah. So uh, it's a very good way to get people to agree with what you think. Right. And getting, get, getting them thinking as well. Well, yeah, to, you know, and to confound people, which I always mm. enjoy. <laughs> Richard Feidler had a great routine where he said to, uh, he said, where are all the women here tonight? And all the women would go, Wah! and he said, women can do whatever they want. Wah! We can climb mountains. Wah! We can have great careers. Wah! We can do anything. Yeah, except have a, <laughs> have a right to vote and a license to drive. <laughs> oh, that would have. And so it was all about that. It was really that whole routine is about blindly following someone when you're not quite sure where they're going. Yeah, yeah, and then falling in the and, trap. <laughs> yeah, and that thing has been persistent. Yeah. So and, it's, and uh, so you it's like people, you know, yeah. wrap their brains with thought, but it is just to, uh, to keep reminding them of yeah. the same kind of themes. It's a very serious business, this comedy, yeah. Suzanne. <laughs> it's very provocative. That's what I love about it. You're a bit of a provocateur. And I see that one of your early books is called um, carry a big stick. Could you tell us about the big stick? Well, yeah, the the big stick is uh, the walking stick, which I often use to get around. Right. It's uh, it's a memoir, the first of many. Yes. And uh, which details, you know, many of the things I've been talking about. But yeah, it's. Uh, um, yeah, it's the story of my life from uh, starting off in Singapore as a little boy while my dad was being a war correspondent in Vietnam, coming back to Australia when the war was over and uh, ending up in Blaney in New South Wales, growing up in the country and then uh, moving when I was uh, when I was 15 down to Canberra. Mm story of the all-stars going you know overseas making tv having fun with tom jones and um we met a show called viva cabaret and he was the regular guest singer and it was fun we used to share his winnebago which was you know always a hoot so all through the all-stars everything we did and then uh the uh, the shark fin of my health yeah. was at least circling. Yeah. Um, from the age of 19, my eyes kind of went a bit wonky. They just mm. sort of fell out of alignment. Right. I could see perfectly well. It's just that they weren't pointing quite right. Yeah. In the right way. I went and got it checked out. The doctor had no idea. Um, <laughs> But uh, from then, there was a little countdown clock that started ticking. Yeah. I had different symptoms of whatever it was, which was mm. buzzing, ringing, tingling, zapping, yeah, burning sensations, like actual fire burning, as opposed mm. to, ooh, I've got a rash. Yeah. Um, 
and balance and all sorts of things mm. and parts of my body would just go offline like my hand yeah. would just stop so my career as a pianist was you know <laughs> was always doomed and it wasn't until I had a couple of bad attacks in London during seasons with the seasons in the West End darling with the Doug Anthony All-Stars that uh, became clear I couldn't be living a comedy rock star lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, this was still without knowing what the hell it was. I came back to Australia and uh, it went away again. It was always coming and going. And I thought I must be mad. What am I doing? I've thrown, you know, a decade's work out the window because I thought I was going to die. And then, and now I'm better again. Anyway, it came back and came back with a great deal of ferocity. And so they, uh, they sent me to, of all places, a neurologist, which didn't make any sense because it was my legs and my arms and my eyes and it, was, it, yeah. was, it wasn't having headaches. But, of course, it was multiple sclerosis. Mm. Mm. Sorry for any listeners. I should have said that at the beginning of the story. No, no. I think I think it's a, it's an amazing thing that you've been able to use. Um, obviously, your devastating experience with MS, but you have used it in your comedy. I've heard you talk about how the chair is an advantage. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, uh, and it hasn't been devastating at all. In fact, the uh, it was it was relief to be told that all of these weird things that kept coming and going were actually all connected to the one thing. Right. That there were uh, there were treatments and medicines and, uh, you know, approaches like physio and those kind of things that can help you stay on top of MS to an extent. It varies yes. for everybody. Mm. So it was kind of good. I mean, it was bad to hear the bit where they say we have no cure. That's the bit that was less fun. But mm. otherwise... Um, at least it uh, it showed me what Sun Tzu would say, which is the mind of my enemy. Yes. You know, the way, the what I was dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Ever since then, you know, it's come and it's gone, and mm. uh, most of the time I will travel in a wheelchair just because it's safer. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I haven't really slowed down. In fact. No, you're I'm, you're very busy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've got a movie I've got to co-direct, and I co-wrote it. Right. What's that about? Oh, it's a bachelor spinster ball. Oh, sounds great. Is, uh, and it's a comedy. I co-wrote mm. it with Edwina Exton, who's a great screenwriter, and I'll be co-directing with um, the uh, comedy legend Mark Gracie, who's directed right. hundreds of hours of television and made films like The Crack yeah. and uh, You and Your Stupid Mate and Take Away and Kink in the Picasso and many other many other features. Sounds great. It's, you know, yeah. it's just another collaboration. Yeah. Because comedy needs collaborators. Yes. And uh, I, I interviewed the wonderful Graham Simpson last week and he tells me that you're quite the mentor for him. He's very, very... Um, 
thankful for uh, the tips, especially the comedy writing aspects of his of his writing, and uh, how helpful you've been. And uh, I think that's a great gift, actually, uh, that you can give to um, you know he's become so successful now, and how good it is to be a mentor to someone like that. Yeah, oh, Graham. I mean, is a very smart and talented guy. He was at RMIT University in Melbourne, where I was teaching the nation's only um, comedy screenwriting course. Uh, advanced diploma. It's the only course in the country. Wow! And don't get me started because it's my contention that if a writer doesn't understand the principles of comedy then they're not writing what they should be. Because every story, no matter how dark, needs a joke. And I would rant about this yes. to screenwriting students. And um, Graham actually uh, uh, talked about his book idea, which was at first a screenplay. Um, and I talked to him about whether his character of a uh, professor with Asperger's and the wild woman that he was being plagued with, whether it should be a romantic comedy. And the, uh, and Graham was very keen on, uh, on making it comic. So it was, uh, I spent uh, six months, you know, teaching him and everybody the, the principles of, narrative comedy so that's yes. comedy stories and characters yeah which brings and, us to the book the, uh, oh, the cheeky monkey project yeah if people are wondering what it is yeah the rosie project which has sold i don't know how many million books worldwide but however many million it is i'm still waiting for a check from Graham. <laughs> i'll let him know <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell him, you know, I anytime he wants to send <laughs> just a henry root check for a dollar that'll do <laughs> Sounds great. So let's get on to your cheeky monkey. This is um, the only book of its kind. Is that, is that not true? Um, there are, uh, yeah, there are elements to the cheeky monkey that differ from uh, a lot of the other books that have been written about writing comedy. Of course, there are things we all have in common from uh, John Vorhaus, who wrote The Comics Toolbox, which is an excellent book for people wanting to be comedians in particular, or Steve Kaplan, who uh, has uh, written uh, extensively about the principles of comedy. Right. Um, uh, Mine is the first to really get down in the dirt with comedy and to spell out uh, the processes and techniques that you can use to uh, create particular gags, yeah. particular narrative turns. So uh, I go into not just reversals and negations and uh, juxtapositions, which uh, many other people talk about, uh, but I go into the way the way the character works in terms of generating generating laughs, how, uh, and I sort of, like a scientist, I, if I didn't discover them, um, I identified them. Uh, joke types such as the lame cover-up, which is 
uh, used a lot, but I could find nothing written about this particular um, thing. And it's basically if uh, it's when someone gets busted doing something in drama, they they lie and they lie well, and they might get away with it. Right. Um, in comedy, they tell a lie, and it's woeful. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> there's there's a guy, uh, Ashton Butcher played a guy Kelso in that '70s show, and he's busted in a garage of his best friend's scary dad. Yeah. And scary dad says, "What the hell are you doing in here?" And Ashton says, "Oh, uh, oh, I was." I was looking for a saw so I could chop down a tree because there's a rabbit in the tree and I wanted it to be able to run free in the forest where it could lay its eggs. <laughs> and that's funny. Uh, but if you start looking for those kind of jokes, you'll see that the principle of having a lame excuse, yeah, a crisis situation, is all over the place. And there are two ways to get out of it. One is for the person who's, you know, having to listen to this ridiculousness is either too busy and they just push past whoever it is or they just assume that whoever's covering up is an idiot or demented um, or, you know, like Basil Fawlty, just eccentric and can't be understood. Yes. And the thing, they will just barrel straight past it. Yeah. But the, the Cheeky Monkey is is full of these kind of comic principles. And they're not formulas, unfortunately, because that would make life easy for everybody. Mm. Um, they're like scaffolding. Right. It doesn't matter if you are building something using sandstone or wood. Um, the scaffolding remains the same. Yeah. So the scaffolding of developing a lame cover-up just remains the same. It doesn't matter what's being covered up. It doesn't matter um, how it's being uh, covered up, whether it's rabbits or UFOs. But the very simple um, structure is there of how to make it work. And that would have been in Faulty Towers quite a lot, that that particular element that you're describing, wouldn't it, wasn't it? He he was hopeless with his wife, you know. (laughs) He would tell ridiculous lies. Basil jumps out at uh, at two guests because he he mistakes them for um, another guest who he thinks he's trying to rip him off. Yes. Jumps out and says, ah, the game is up, and realises, uh-oh, he's done it to the wrong guests. <laughs> so he gets a broom and says, ah, there's a piece of game pie up there on the roof. <laughs> Pokes it with a broom. It's totally ridiculous. Why <laughs> And there's no pie up there either. <laughs> no. It's a white ceiling. But he does this anyway. Yeah, um, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah, so simple. And once you know what you're looking for, mm. at least then you have a traffic light on the way as mm. you're writing your jokes. And there are all sorts of things. The inescapable conclusion is, you know, one of my favourites. It's where... Uh, a woman from the Make-A-Wish Foundation is visiting little Kenny from South Park um, <laughs> in the hospital and she says, so, Kenny, tell me, what do you wish? And Kenny says, which is translated as, 
He says his wish is not to die. And the lady from the Make-A-Wish Foundation says, Uh-huh. What if you had two wishes? <laughs> so the basic premise of the inescapable conclusion, of course, is that, you know, this person's not getting out of whatever they want. Yeah. Martha Ray uh, had a good one-liner, which was, Ask any little girl what she wants to be, apart from beautiful, and she will say, More beautiful. Great. <laughs> That's when we think we're getting out, it pulls us back in. Yeah. So I've got yeah. a whole bunch of these different principles mm. and they uh, and they're not recognisable to a reader or a viewer. Yeah, yeah. So this book would be really, really useful for our um, emerging writers who are trying to, um, you know, break into, uh, into publishing and getting their books out there and... Um, you know, having a bit of humour in, as you say, in the darkest places. I mean, life life is like that. Shakespeare wrote it like that, that um, that comedy is a, is a necessary element of every story, isn't it? Hamlet was hilarious. Yes. Um, you know, there's nothing like a miserable teenager, um, <laughs> you know, flipping life on its head and back and poking at it um, and even questioning whether to live or to die um it's very it's so important and i'll have a little bit of a rant here susan yeah good <laughs> if someone is a writer and they're writing drama of any kind they should simply look at the symbol of drama right. the symbol of drama is two masks one's laughing and one's crying yes and these two things need each other you cannot write without it even if you're writing a tragedy in the classic Aristotelian uh, sense, you still need humour, much in the same way that the film Titanic yep. has humour, um, much in the same way as uh, Schindler's List has moments of clear and deliberate humour. Yeah. And the same thing with comedy, it's got to be about something important. You need the crying mm. mask to be operating mm. in a comedy. Yeah. Um, otherwise the stories, you know, it's false wit. And there's no relief. There's no relief for the audience. I think, um, you know, I saw a film recently that that was tragic and it was just one tragic element after another and at the end I felt totally drained and thought, no, this isn't what real life is about. Even in the darkest moments, people have humour, you know. Well, to... it's, bad, it's bad writing. Yes. It is bad writing, um, whether it's comedy, tragedy or drama, um, to not use both of those two masks because those two masks are writing. And any writer who says their subject matter is above humour yep. is, is a bad writer. And yep. it is a bad project and it will not work. It will not reach an audience. Mm. It cannot cross over, mm. um, particularly if this thing is for the stage or the screen. It cannot be done. It will not work. Yeah. They must embrace comic principles. Now, whether they do it by reading my book, which will be less and save them about three years, <laughs> yes. or whether they just, you know, try to work it out themselves, which, you know, and they will work it out themselves if they work hard enough, it has to be wrestled with. Yes. Because look at it this way. If I said, hey, do you want to come out on an internet date? I've got two friends. Pick one. One is this tragic guy. He cries a lot, he's miserable, and he's really angry. And the other one 
you know, well, he's, he's, you know, well, he's got a sense of humour. Who are you going to go out with? Who are you going to sleep with? Who are you going to be able to build a life with? Ah. <laughs> he wants to go out with some sad sack. Yeah. It is a sad sack. They want it to be like Woody Allen. So at least he's funny, even while he's being miserable. It's that freaking simple. <laughs> so, Tim Ferguson, this was the secret to your dating life. That's why you became a comedian, is that right? <laughs> to get well, all the girls. I tell my students, if you, if you write comedy, you get paid and you get laid. <laughs> G-S-O-H, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no one crosses a room to talk to the most miserable writer of the <laughs> darkest, most torrid awfulness. And it's really that simple. The reason why Australian institutions and writing courses don't focus at all on comedy, it's twofold. One is that the teachers don't understand comedy. No, it's too hard. It's too hard. They all say, oh, it's too hard because they haven't stopped for five minutes to think about it. Yep. To look at comedy, you know, closely. We've all heard comedy but to actually replay it, reread it, and try to work out what's going on. Because they haven't put in the time, they think it's just something that funny people do. And yeah. the other reason is that Aristotle's book of comedy was destroyed or lost. And so um, the, uh, the pillars of writing um, are missing, well, the other pillar. Yeah. He wrote poetics, which was, you know, all where the hero's journey stories come from. Right. But his book comedy was destroyed, and so there are only about, oh, about a page and a half in poetics pointing out how comedy works. And those principles are still right today. But mm. there is, uh, there's an absence of understanding which has created a convenient lack of respect. Yeah, yeah. It's easier to not respect something that you don't understand, which yes. is how Andrew Bolt works. <laughs> right. We won't go there. All right, I'm going <laughs> like it. And so he disparages it because he hasn't looked at it closely enough. Fair enough. And uh, if he knew more about it, then he would understand, oh, wait a second, eh. I guess 97% of the world's scientists aren't all that wrong. But comedies have the same <laughs> treatment. So it's, it's a joy to work with writers and explain how it works because when you get it right, people, well, they buy your books. They put yes. your shows on the TV. I've got a series I edited with Sammy J and Pete McIver, the controller of Randy the Puppet, Yep. Um, would be coming up on ABC soon, which is written according to Cheeky Monkey principles. The movie I'm about to make yep. is written according to those principles. Um, and writers have to get their heads around it. Or I tell them now, if they are listening, if they do not wrestle with comedy and try to, if not master it, to at least tackle some of its principles, they will, for the rest of their lives, write crap. Unreadable bilge. That's a great, great piece of advice. Thanks very much for that tip. And no worries. Uh, <laughs> You're funny. You know how it works. <laughs> I sit back and be smug about it. Okay, okay. Now, um, I I know your your time is very valuable, and I could talk to you all day, but I um understand you've got a movie to make. 
I just want to finish off with with one question, and that's uh, because we're talking about how important uh, understanding comedy is to do with writing, and writing is to do with life. So I wanted to ask you whether um, you know there are these whole movements of people who who have laughter clubs and and you know because uh, a comedy is is a kind of therapy as well it would you agree with that oh yeah um, laughter uh, triggers uh, a couple of things in our in our systems and it does it involuntarily um, and it does it spontaneously if we laugh for a while you'll find that uh, we we get a little kick of adrenaline yeah. Um, also, we get endorphins flushed through our system, um, which is where that sound comes from. When people laugh heartily, we go, ha, 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 and then we go, ah, ha, 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 ha. we make that <laughs> ah, sound. Yeah. And that is the endorphin hit, which is, you know, they're peptide hormones that make us feel good, give us endurance, and act as painkillers. Yes. Um, so, of course, it's going to make you feel good because it has this effect it's like running for 10 minutes yeah will generate those endorphins and you feel better it's a natural morphine so to speak Mm. so uh yeah laughter is very good for for your body very good Mm. for your health Mm. Mm. and so um tim i i assume poets you know have bad health poets always you know they've always got a cold Sorry, Suzanne, you were saying? No, no room for comedy and poetry then. Well, you would think not if you talk to the Australian ones. <laughs> oh, dear. Before you insult too many more people, I think we need to finish. <laughs> They're only writers, for God's sake. I'm not allowed to. Yes, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously at all. <laughs> seriously is a very lonely lonely absolutely absolutely so i'm going to uh, make sure that as many people on this planet will go out there and buy your book and um, certainly study it and use it use the principles to make their writing better and then perhaps send you send you the check in the mail is that right (laughs) when they're successful at least a dollar but Okay. Um, the thing about writing comedy is not to be scared of it because if you can yeah. laugh, then of course you can write stuff that's funny. You don't, you don't have to be, um, uh, you don't have to be a naturally funny person. Much yeah. in the same way as you can write a heroic journey story without being heroic. Yes. Fair we enough. Just, we just use that thing. What do they call it? Oh yeah, imagination. And what's the other thing? That's oh the- yes, craft. Beautiful. Comedy is a craft. It is not a. It's not a magical mystery. Yeah. It is in all of us, and so people shouldn't be thinking, "Oh, well, I've got to be the life of the party to be funny." You can do anything with a typewriter. Yeah. And with right principles and tools. We have com- com- we have computers today, Tim. Tim, we have computers. The typewriters are gone. <laughs> oh still- <laughs> yeah. <that's true>. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very, very much, Tim. 
and um, I hope that you get some feedback and uh, and uh, and the dollars roll in and I hope that your film's fantastic. What's it called, the film that's coming out? Uh, spin Out. Spin Out. Sounds like you. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, come in, Spin Out. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And thanks <laughs> okay. to everyone who's listened all the way to the end. Yep. Um, thanks for enduring it. It's wonderful. Thanks a lot, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe. Subscribe.